Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. I'm joined in the studio today by my two co-hosts, Joanne McClellan, president of the African-American Heritage Society of Murray County, and Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Tom. Our program today is called Murray County's Hidden Figures. Most of our listeners will recognize the reference to the 2016 film Hidden Figures, which was based on the book by Margot Lee Shetterly, published in the same year, which told the story of three African-American women who worked behind the scenes for the early space program at NASA. The three women were Catherine Goebel Johnson, who would calculate orbital trajectories for the Mercury and Apollo programs, Dorothy Johnson Vaughn, who was a mathematician and human computer, who became the first African-American woman to supervise a group of staff at the center, and Mary Jackson, who was the first female African-American engineer to work for NASA. Each of them contributed greatly to their fields, but because of the time in which they lived, a time of segregation and racial inequality in America, their achievements were often overshadowed by their white counterparts. All three would eventually be recognized for their work. In 2015, Catherine Goebel Johnson was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award presented to a civilian. Of course, we know that every community has its own hidden figures, and Murray County is no exception. A large number of citizens from the African-American community have left their mark in the fields of business, religion, medicine, and entertainment. Today, we'll be talking about some of Murray County's hidden figures and their accomplishments. Joanne, your research in Murray County has uncovered some incredible stories that have not yet been officially recorded in the history books. Why are these hidden figure stories important to document? The... The African-American impact on history is far-reaching and deeply etched in the social fabric of America. The African-American narrative is often hidden except for chapters on slavery and civil rights movement. Yes, slavery and civil rights struggles are important aspects of our history, but the men and women of prior generations were far more than slaves and protesters. The African-American narrative is often told as if there was no life after slavery. Former slaves became business owners, educators, doctors, lawyers, scientists, and much, much more. We need to tell the rest of the story, the story of the everyday people who were building communities, businesses, churches, and making a way for themselves. One of the things that you and I have discussed that when you come to the archives and, and you look at the histories that have been written, there, there's a huge amount of history that's been recorded uh, over time. But one of the things that we found is there's a lot of history written about African Americans prior to the Civil War, and then there seems to be a big gap uh, until the Civil Rights period and the race ride of 1946. W- what's happening in the African American community between 1865 and 1965? Well, you know, 1865 started the Reconstruction period, and the uh, the African Americans were trying to build lives for themselves right after the Civil War, and there were several and th- several important things that they were trying to do. One was to be- reunite with their families and then to get an education. They felt that the real path to freedom was education, so most of the <laughs> Former slaves flocked 
to the schools that the Freeman Bureau built, there were Freeman Bureau schools all over the county. The students were from ages 6 to 60. The older students wanted to learn to read the Bible. Of course, the younger students were into the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic. So for those listeners who don't know, the Freedmen's Bureau was a federally funded program uh, where people went into the South, into communities, and they constructed schools. And we've discovered banks and, and things that uh, institutions that would help the former enslaved, formerly enslaved, become contributors to the community. Yes, and interesting, there was a Freedmen's Bureau official here in Tennessee, in Middle Tennessee, who made the comment uh, after being here a short while about the former slaves. He said, these people will starve themselves and go without clothing in order to provide their children an education. Right. They they saw the immediate benefits of, of education and what that was going to mean, not just for them, but for their children and the generations to come. Um, after the Civil War, certainly in Murray County, everybody's lives changed dramatically. Uh, so I, I don't think we can say enough or, or write enough about what was going on. But in this time, uh, between 1865 and 1965, the African-American community is making that incredible shift to becoming part of the community. They're opening churches. They're opening businesses uh, and, and uh, becoming a part of the fabric of, of Murray County and its community. Let's talk about some of Murray County's hidden figures. We'll start off in the business world. Um, Joanne, tell us about Rufus Estes, a man described in a Chicago newspaper as, quote, one of the best-known chefs in Chicago. Who is that guy? Well, Rufus was born um, in uh, 1857. He um, saw two of his brothers go off to the war. They were both killed uh, in the Civil War. And the good news is we have them listed on the war memorial on the square. Uh, he saw his w- mother suffer greatly as a result of lo- u- losing her sons. So he vowed to always take care of his mother. So Rufus actually started to work when he was about six or seven years old, uh, p- picking up, taking up, performing some of the responsibilities that his older brothers had. He was, um, he went to work, uh, uh, milking cows and cleaning up the pastures. And he would also deliver lunches to his um, some of the laborers in the field for like 25 cents a, a meal. Finally, they moved to Nashville. And when he was 16 years old, he started to work in a restaurant. And then this is when he started his career on to becoming a well-known chef. Yeah. And uh, um, he published a cookbook later in his life called Good Things to Eat, which was 22 chapters long, 591 recipes in it. Uh, so he became an incredibly well-known chef and became sort of a chef to chef to the wealthy, right? So in 1883, Estes was hired by the Pullman Private Car Service. And when we say private car service, we mean the railroad, the Pullman Railroad Service, to cook for the wealthy of its client, wealthiest of its clientele. Who are some of the VIPs that Mr. Estes got to cook for uh, Ashley, uh, he cooked for a couple of presidents of the United States, uh, President Cleveland and uh, Harrison. And there were opera singers that he cooked for. So he became very, very well known. Right. Uh, Mr. Estes' reputation grew. 
And by 1897, he was hired by Arthur Sitwell, who is the president of the Kansas City, Pittsburgh, and Gould Railroad, to run his private car, which was reported to be worth some $20,000. Now, I did a little calculator uh, calculating to see what that means in today's money. That's about $591,000 that that car was worth. It was richly appointed. It had mahogany interiors and, and velvet, sort of what you would what you would think in your mind's eye of, of a very lavish railroad car. And so Mr. Estes gets hired on to be sort of in charge of that car. Um, and and um, that really sort of propels his career further. What kind of recipes did, did he... He had some really interesting recipes, but what one recipe that I thought was sort of unusual, it was for fried chicken. And everybody cooks fried chicken, but he uh, he said one four and a half to five pound chicken. To me, that was a large chicken. That's like a small <laughs> turkey. And he said, cut it into 10 pieces. Kentucky fried chicken has reduced that number to eight, but I do know how to cook, cut a chicken into 10 pieces. In fact, I can cut a chicken into 11 pieces. But his uh, fried chicken recipe recipe was very lengthy and one that I'm planning to try soon. Yeah. At the beginning of his book, he, he writes sort of a short autobiography. He wanted people to know what his story was and where he came from. Uh, at the time that he wrote it, he was sort of at the pinnacle of his of his cooking career. And uh, so I, I thought it was interesting. The very first sentence in his uh, little biographical sketch at the beginning says, I was born in Murray County, Tennessee. Murray spelled M-U-R-R-A-Y, which is interesting. I was born in Murray County, Tennessee in 1857, a slave. I was given the name of my master, D.J. Estes, who, was own, who owned my mother's family, consisting of seven boys and two girls, I being the youngest of the family. So it's a, a wonderful document. His cookbook is available still. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It can be found at uh, the... I think Duck River, Duck River Books Bookstore locally yes. has it. Amazon, you can buy it on there in its reprinted form. Uh, I think there was just a very limited run when he first published it, maybe 10 or 12 copies, something like that. So those are highly sought after, those original copies. And interest, interesting enough, he only sold it for 50 cents. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they held an auction, and uh, someone bought the first book for $11. So Interesting. I was noticing in Joanne's research that uh, Rufus Estes managed President Grover Cleveland's Pullman car. And this would have been during his second term following the administration of Benjamin Harrison, which Rufus also managed his Pullman car. And it was in 1893 that, with the panic of 1893, that old man Pullman cut wages but also raised the uh, rents and all the prices in his company town and the Pullman workers went out on strike and they were joined by the American Railway Union workers and it was President Grover Cleveland who sent troops into Chicago to break that strike and I bet that was awkward for Rufus (laughs) Estes. I bet you're right about that and it's not long after that I think he gets out of the railroad business altogether uh, and continues continues in other venues. Uh, Do we know where he wound up? How long did he live and, and do you, do we know? He uh, he ended up um, moving eventually to California. He and his mom lived in Chicago for a while, and then they moved to California. And he ended up dying in California, and I think he was about 83 years old. Well, there's a great deal of material online. If you're interested in learning more about, about Rufus Estes, there's plenty of material out there. And we're so thankful that he saw fit to, to write his cookbook and, and tell his story. Uh, so one of one of our hidden figures. 
before we go further and talk about our next uh, hidden figure, let's talk just a little bit about slavery in Murray County so that we can sort of provide some context. So many of the people that we'll be talking about today sort of made that transition from slavery to freedom. So uh, just a couple of statistics. Prior to the Civil War, Murray County was the wealthiest county in the state due to its extremely fertile soil and the free labor provided by the enslaved. Murray County ranked fifth in population after Wilson, Knox, Shelby, and Davidson counties, respectively. 45% of the population were enslaved. 52% of households owned slaves. So I think that's an interesting statistic, especially that last one, 52% of household owned slaves. Most people in Murray County were slaveholders in the time. And again, 45% of the population being enslaved, it's a huge percentage. So when emancipation comes after the Civil War, there's a large portion of the population that had once been enslaved are now free and and becoming a part of the community. Uh, and so we'll we'll explore that uh, a little bit more as we continue uh, on with uh, with our hidden figures program. We'll be right back right after these messages. Don't go away. History's hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Celebrate love with Tillis Jewelry's exclusive Valentine's Day Pink Box Special. Surprise your special someone with an exquisite piece from our collection, elegantly presented in a charming pink box. Each box comes with delectable chocolates and is adorned with a beautiful white bow. My name is Jenna, and this Valentine's Day, let's make it unforgettable. Because when you choose Tillis, you're not just giving a gift, you're creating a moment that will be cherished forever. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. 
Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about Murray County's hidden figures, those uh, people who uh, lived in Murray County and sort of worked behind the scenes but went on to do uh, pretty incredible things on a national scale. Uh, the next person that we're going to talk about was not enslaved, however, but a free person of color. Uh, Joanne, how many free people of color were living in Murray County? Actually, you know, I know that number is 143, and I've tried to research them all, uh, and I haven't. But as a, as a group, they were uh, carpenters or plasterers, which is a part of the carpentry trade, I, I suppose. Uh, the women were wash women or ironing, um, the day laborers, of course, but uh, there were ba- basically 143. And that was based on the 1860 census? Eight, based right. on the 1860 census. So 100, census, yeah. 143 43. people living in Murray County who were free right. people of color, right. not enslaved, but slavery still in existence in the time. So they were, they were, they had jobs, they were contributing to the community. Do we have any sense of where their place was, sort of in the social strata, when when slavery still is in existence, and how did how did they navigate life in in Murray County? Do we have a sense of that? I think uh, very well because you know uh, there were free people of color that established the Mount Lebanon Church, uh, and that was was a you know big big church in uh, Murray County, and I think they had their own little uh, social structure going. Of course, you know Dyer Johnson purchased his freedom in the 1850s, and he and his uh, family were uh, in uh, 1865 a part of the establishment of the uh, Freedmen Bureau School in uh, in Columbia. I know there were a couple of times, and Barry, you might be able to speak to this, there were a couple of times in Tennessee's history where they actually passed laws prohibiting free people of color from remaining in Tennessee. Uh, they were actually required by law to leave. I think in 1851, there may have been an earlier one in about 1831, uh, where free people of color were not welcomed here. Uh, it was, uh, if you read sort of the legislation, they were concerned that the, the free people of color would have an impact on the enslaved in a, and from, from a white owner perspective in a, in a negative way. So they were actually, unless they signed a document that said that they would uh, act in a certain manner, they, they were actually asked to leave the state. We have a number of court cases uh, in the archives that sort of speak to that, people who are either leaving or they're, they're able to stay through that time. Well, and in 1834, when Tennessee rewrote its constitution, uh, Tennessee's original 1796 constitution uh, allowed free African-American males to vote. But when Tennessee rewrote its constitution in 1834, it, it, it inserted a prohibition against free black males right. from voting. So law, laws have changed pretty dramatically just depending on how, how things played out. Uh, our next hidden figure is John Brown, known as John Brown the Barber. Tell us about him, Joanne. He, he was really an interesting figure. And uh, what most people don't know is that his barber shop was actually just off the square. It was like next door to the uh, Nelson House Hotel. He owned that barbershop starting from, the say, the 1850s. 
1860, his net worth was almost $600,000, too. And he was the a money man of the community, if you will, because he would lease property to other people. He would lend money to other, to other people. So he was uh, very well-respected, very well-known. And, of course, he was James K. Polk's barber also. Right, right. <laughs> so we've come across some um, documents in the archives that talk uh, about what you just said, speak to what you just said. He was actually lending money, not just to African-Americans, he was lending money to white folks in Columbia as well. And, and I want to highlight what you said, too, that his shop was right on the square. It, it was in and amongst white businesses as well. They were part of the downtown, uh, of free people of color were part of the downtown area. There's a very similar story, and I've taken a number of students uh, down to Natchez on the Natchez Trace Parkway, and there's a very similar story in Natchez, a man named William Johnson, who's called the Barber of Natchez. And in Natchez, down in the historic district, old downtown historic district, they have a really nice museum in William Johnson's residence to William Johnson. Uh, And I would would recommend anybody see that if they're if they're in Natchez. The role of the barber, the African-American barber in a community, was pretty significant. There have been a few histories written about it. What, what do we know, Joanne? What, what was the role? Why, why does it appear that uh, African-American barbers in a community had some, had some power behind them? Well, number one, they, were, they owned their own businesses. They were like leaders in the community. Uh, they uh, had, had some money. And it was the barbershop was a place where African-American men could come and talk about uh, political issues, talk about anything that was going on in the community. It was almost like the a strategy center, if you will, for uh, some of the um, some of the uh, things going on in the community. So uh, their position, they were cutting hair, not just for African-Americans, they were cutting hair for. Uh, white men in the community as well. And I remember going to a barber as a kid. We went to Charlie the Barber. Um, My mother would call him Charlie the Butcher. He wasn't a great barber, but uh, it was where sort of all the old men in the community would come on Saturday morning. They all had newspapers in front of them, and they talked politics. And Charlie the Barber knew everything that was going on in the community. And I suspect it's sort of the same thing even in the 19th century for these African-American barbers. They're getting all the information. They become sort of an information center. And the fact that they're sort of crossing the boundary uh, 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 by cutting hair for both African-Americans and whites, that they're, they're a center of information, but because they know that information, it gives them – it sort of gives them credit, so to speak. It gives them influence on, on – uh, from from both of those perspectives. So uh, John Brown the Barber, an, an interesting character here. There's a, a great photograph I think we have that shows John Brown the Barber's shop on North Main Street, uh, right next to what is uh, now Nelson House and Caledonia Financial. Exactly. There are a number of buildings still standing in the downtown area of Columbia that speak to African-American run or African-American owned businesses. Tell us about the buildings on East 8th and South Main Street that were owned by John W. Johnson? Well, first, uh, John, you, you need to know a little bit of background about John W. Johnson. His, he was a part of the Johnson family, Dower Johnson's son. Uh, Dower Johnson had um, two sons that became very, very um, well-known in the community. But John W. Johnson uh, was an educator. He ended up becoming the first African-American to uh, 
to become the president of Roger Williams University in Nashville. He attended Roger Williams. He also attended Brown University and came back to serve as president. But he was also an entrepreneur. He was um, he owned a, a real estate company. He was a notary. And he decided to buy that building at the corner of South Main and East 8th Street in 1896. He, he paid only $1,400 for that building, and he leased space to black and white business owners. It was also the home of many of the doctors, African-American doctors, that moved into Murray County. Um, there was a... Um, beauty shop there, just anyone who needed a space to run a business, he was willing to uh, lease it to him, to them. Uh, He was, the family owned that building for almost 80 years. The, uh, his, uh, the executor of his estate finally sold it in um, 1973, I think. How did he get the education that he got? He's going to Brown University and Roger Williams are some of the finest uh, educational institutions in the country. How, How did he manage that? Well, Back to back to his father. His father was a carpenter, and based on the research of that family, and Murray County in general, this county, the African Americans were really totally focused on education. They believed in um, in education, and you know he attended a Freeman Bureau School here, and he was just through his determination able to go to school and. Um, he decided to come back to contribute to this community. It's a wonderful story. The buildings are beautiful today. Uh, I think they're mostly vacant currently, but it was interesting and fun. Uh, Joanne and I wrote several articles for the local newspaper back in June and uh, wanted to look at East 8th Street, and, and we found Sanborn maps, which are fire insurance maps, which are incredibly detailed. Uh, they started making them in the mid-1880s and go into the 1950s, and you can really track sort of how these how this community evolved over time. And we were able to, using those maps, sort of piece together John W. Johnson's buildings and how they were used over time. It's a, a wonderful resource. One other thing about John W. Uh, Johnson, he and his brother started something called the um, uh, Murray County Teachers Institute. They started this in the uh, late 18... 18- 80s, early 1900s, to make sure that there were African-American teachers prepared to go out in the rural community to teach. They were just totally focused on education. Um, education, we'll come back to that one. I think we have a, a great story um, that will lead, lead into that again. You know, I had not heard of Roger Williams University, so I had to look this up. And I thought this is incredible that, that this young man can go from Roger Williams University in Nashville to Brown uh, University. And uh, and when I looked this up, of course, I found that Roger Williams University is actually what became the American Baptist Theological Seminary, right. which is now the American Baptist College, which played in a large role in the civil rights movement. Bernard Lafayette, John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, they all graduated from that right. college. Exactly, exactly. Some enslaved people were skilled craftsmen. There were carpenters, there were blacksmiths, there were brickmakers. One of those tradesmen passed on his expertise to his descendants, who have in turn expanded his knowledge into one of the most influential American businesses today. Joanne, who is Moses McKissick? 
Well, uh, when transitioning from slavery to freedom, many used trades that they had practiced while enslaved to construct new lives. And Moses McKissick was one of them. Um, the As a slave, Moses I um, was brought to, to Murray County from North Carolina. He learned to make bricks out in Spring Hill, and he used that he passed that trade on to Moses the second and Moses the third. So he had, he married uh, this Cherokee uh, Indian woman and they had like 14 children. And it was Moses the third that uh, moved to Nashville and started this McKissick uh, architectural firm. They were probably one of the first registered architects in Tennessee. Uh, and after that, the family just continued to um, build on that business. And now it's one of the largest architectural firms in the United States. It's, it built several buildings in, um, in Nashville. And it also, they also constructed the, um, at the Smithsonian, the African-American Museum. The National Museum of African-American History, right? right. It's the newest, newest uh, wing of the Smithsonian Institution. You know, one of the most endearing stories that they tell at the Ripavilla Mansions about Nathaniel Cheers, Nathaniel the Fourth, and I'm beginning to realize they didn't tell they don't tell the whole story here, because uh, some of you are familiar with the story. Nathaniel was courting Susan McKissick Springhill. Nathaniel the Third, his father was not happy because there was this tradition that the Nathaniels in the Cheers family married women named Sarah. And he actually offered Nathaniel the fourth, he offered him five thousand dollars in gold to dump Susan and find a woman named Sarah. <laughs> and Susan's family, Susan's father, then turned around and offered Nathaniel, said, If you marry my daughter, I will provide you with all the bricks for your house. And it's Moses McKissick that is making those He's bricks. Making those bricks. Right. And, uh, and Nathaniel and Susan married. Uh, Nathaniel's father gave him the $5,000 in gold anyway, apparently. But, but Moses would have made the brick for that house. Right. And I'm beginning to wonder if maybe Moses had a little bit more to do with the construction of that house than we let on. It's entirely possible. It's interesting. I was at Ripavilla just a few weeks ago, and I was walking around the house and looking at it closely like I often do in these old houses. I'm I'm surprised I haven't been arrested yet, but uh, I found a number of bricks that had fingerprints in them. So as they're making the bricks and they're handling the bricks, their fingerprints are imprinted on these things, and they use them, of course, uh, in, in the building of the house. And I probably found half a dozen of those. And it makes you wonder, as you're walking by these structures and, and thinking about what it took to construct these incredible pieces of architecture, that maybe one of those fingerprints is Moses McKissick's fingerprint. So just to reiterate, so he passes on his knowledge to his children and his grandchildren. Moses McKissick III starts the first African-American architectural firm in Tennessee, uh, and then passes it on to his children. It's now entirely female-run. Is that right, Joanne? Exactly. Uh, his probably great-great-granddaughters, uh, their headquarters in Washington, and they exactly female-owned, which is good. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible story. So uh, from Moses McKissick and Ripavilla Plantation in the 19th century to McKissick and McKissick today, building the uh, National Museum of African-American History in Washington, D.C., an amazing story that starts right here in Murray County. 
We're going to take our second break. Uh, We'll be back in about three minutes and 30 seconds. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown columbia securities and investment advisory services offered through nbc securities incorporated member finra and sipc this is debbie matthews with the nashville realty group and if you've been paying attention you know the housing market has been tough but rates are beginning to thaw so if you're thinking about selling the time to jump in is getting better every day but if you're thinking about buying and those interest rates are still a little bit too high, a good agent knows how to negotiate interest rate buy-downs. And I'm a good agent. So call me, Debbie Matthews with National Realty Group, 615-476-3224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio today by Joanne McClellan, who is the president of the African-American Heritage Society of Murray County, and Dr. Barry Gidcom, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. And we're talking about Murray County's hidden figures. A number of African-American religious leaders emerged from Murray County. One in particular that I want to focus and spend some time on is the Reverend Edmund Kelly. His story to me is one of the most compelling of anyone who comes from Murray County. What, what can you tell us about him, Joanne? 
It uh, It is compelling, and it's one of my favorite stories, you know, starting with the time that he was a child here, uh, paying uh, kids with candy to teach him to uh, read and write when he was like 16 years old. So he was born as an enslaved man. He was an enslaved child. child. <laughs> <laughs> he was an enslaved child here in Murray County. His owner hired him out to one of the boys' schools, and he worked there. Um, waiting tables, and at night uh, he would borrow the books from the boys so he could learn to read and write. And he, in one of his, um, in his diary called Redeemed, he wrote that, um, you know, he worked all day and he wanted some rest and he would like pray to God that he would wake at 11 o'clock just to get up to learn to read because he was just borrowing these books so he needed to use them at night while the kids were not using them. So the and, sun goes down, he goes to bed, but prays that he wakes up at 11 o'clock at night to get up so he can teach himself to read. To read. To read. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, he ended up uh, going on to be one of the co-founders of Mount Lebanon Church. Uh, he... Um, he was the first ordained minister in the state of Tennessee. He was so. Did he have training to be a minister, or, or he once he, he learned was, to read, he's reading the Bible? He's, Is that he? Yeah, he's reading the Bible. Back back in the day, they didn't have training like we think of it today. He was reading the Bible. He knew. I read someplace he knew that he was he was Catholic. He was raised Catholic. His father was an Irish immigrant. His mother was a slave. He was raised. Catholic, but then he became, he was baptized, I think, in 1838 because he knew that he wanted to become a minister. So uh, he was, um, he was the first minister of Mount Lebanon. He was ordained by a white um, Baptist organization in Nashville. So uh, this was just a part of, you know, who he was. So he has a calling. He's yeah, praying. a calling, yes. <laughs> he's, he's praying to wake up at 11 o'clock. He's teaching himself to read. He's reading the Bible, and he learns it well, because if you read some of his later works, his quotations from the Bible and how he's using them and weaving them into his sermons are incredible. He's a, he's a true Bible scholar. He he really is. And later on, he writes something called The Questions, where he's it's a list of questions where he's uh, using that to teach people in other, in other churches. He uh, ends up leaving here. His, uh, his owner uh, gets into some financial problems, and she gives him permission to leave the state. So he works as a missionary all over the United States, ended up in New Bedford, New Bedford Massachusetts. So, so he, he gets a letter from his owner saying that he is allowed to travel anywhere in the United States, to any state, to evangelize. Exactly. He, uh, the organization in Nashville wanted to hire hire him, but he could not work out the details, so he could continue to work as an evangelist under this arrangement. And he ended up being going to New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was the founder, co-founder of seven or eight churches up in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He also became the leader of something called the American Baptist uh, Association, which became, I guess, the National Baptist Association. But as a part of that, he met with Abraham Lincoln on several occasions. And Lincoln actually hired him to minister to the um, Union soldiers behind the lines when um, when the African Americans eventually joined the uh, joined the Civil War. 
so let's let's go back just a little bit before Lincoln. So this is a, it just this this blows my mind. So he gets permission. She's getting money. To She's do this. getting ten dollars a month. His owner is getting money for allowing him to do this, but he is allowed to go. And he has a letter that allows him to go to any state in the union, and he goes to the northeast, right? Sort of the hotbed of abolitionism by this time period, right? right. And he starts churches, so he's clearly a leader. He's a religious leader, even in puritanical New England. He's a standout person, and so how does he get his freedom? Because at this point, he's still a slave. <laughs> You know, that's to me that is, um, and many historians are not clear how he actually gets his freedom. Uh, some people say he purchased his freedom, some people say that he was actually given his freedom, but it's not really, not really clear. So, we're not sure how he gets his freedom, right. but we are clear on how his wife and his children become free. Right, because his he left his wife and four kids back here in, in Colombia. And he ends up buying his wife and kids from their owner. And his their owner was James Walker, who was the son-in-law of... Brother-in-law, brother-in-law of, of President, President of Polk. President yeah. Polk. So his home still stands. And this is where uh, Edmund's wife, Paralee, and his children are living uh, at, a, at a place that still stands here in Columbia called Rally Hill. That was their home. And, and so Edmund Kelly... Uh, through through an abolitionist organization, I believe, writes a letter to uh, James Walker saying that they are interested in purchasing the freedom of his wife, Paralee, and their children. If you'll let me, I'd like to read the letter that, uh, that um, Walker writes back in sure. reply, because I think it speaks volumes to uh, the thought process and slavery in, in uh, the 18, 1840s. I think this is 1849. So this is James Walker writing back to Edmund Kelly. He writes, Dolly, the mother of your wife, was my nurse, took the tenderest care of me when I was an orphan child. The attachment which this has produced on my part and on the part of my wife and children to her and her children and their children and their treatment is altogether different from what is ordinarily termed slavery. Although they occupy the position of servants to me and my family, they, in reality, in the tie of affection and regard for their comfort and happiness which exists, are not slaves at all. They, if they are colored, stand next in my affection to my own wife and children and children's children, the affection I believe to be mutual. Now, if you could command the means to pay for and emancipate them, could you provide for and place them in a happier and more comfortable condition than they are now in and have every guarantee of remaining? This is the question to be considered and satisfactorily answered before I will take the matter into consideration. I much doubt your ability to make the change you desire beneficial to them if I were even voluntarily to emancipate them. This I shall not do for the simple reason that I believe doing so would not benefit them if there were no other reason. But I have other reasons. My family are accustomed to and must have servants, servants to whom they are attached and who are great, truly attached to them are invaluable. Servants who are raised up in a family, perfectly honest and upright, attached to those who are their owners and protectors, are a necessary part of a family. So, so you're getting the sense, right? I mean, this is a real look inside of the persona of, of a white person in the 19th century during slavery and how they're perceiving slavery to them. There's that familial attachment that you'll hear, that, uh, that paternal side of things, that they're caring for the enslaved in their family. 
but he he's also saying, but if you could come up with twenty eight hundred dollars, we'd probably part with them, and, and that's how it plays out, right? That's exactly how it plays out. He came up with the twenty twenty eight hundred dollars, and they were moved or brought to New Bedford, Massachusetts, in about eighteen fifty one. Uh, the letter goes on, and, and this is an interesting part, too, where, where Walker starts making his argument for why he might accept $2,800. And he says, I never blamed you for exercising the natural right of securing your freedom, if you could. This was your natural right, and in exercising it, you committed no offense against your God, whose approbation alone is to be looked to. So it's interesting that he he accepts, and maybe there's a glint of respect for him for finding a way to get free. Um, but... Uh, again, he's he's going to do his best to, to make the money if he can, uh, unfortunately. But uh, he does uh, accept the $2,800, Edmund Kelly, and that's a huge sum of money in the time, right? Exactly. Um, Walker makes the argument that if you're looking at it from a business standpoint, each of these family members are probably worth $2,800 each, but he'll accept $2,800 for, for the whole family. But that's a huge amount of money to raise in 1849. Um, but Edmund Kelly is able to do it and secure the freedom of his family, who then join him uh, in the Northeast. I'd like to continue with the story if we can. Uh, we're going to take our, our last break here, and we'll be right back with History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. Hey, this is Jonathan Castile, a.k.a. John Boy, with John Boy's Handyman Service. One call and we'll handle it all. Truly means we'll handle it all. From pressure washing your house to doing remodeling, we're licensed, insured, and bonded. So rest assured, John Boy will handle it all. You can contact me at 931-242-7620 or my email, castilljonathan10 at gmail.com. Have you ever wondered if your insurance needs can be personalized? This is Hunter Carey. Our team specializes in planning your insurance needs to get you the best possible solution. State Farm is the largest home and auto insurer in the country. I love bringing that to my hometown. Born and raised in Columbia, I'm grateful for our close community ties. We offer help with home, auto, and life insurance for everyone in our community. Our office is located at 909 South Garden Street, across from the fire station. We're also online at huntercary.com. That's huntercary.com. Hi, Jimmy here for Columbia Ace Hardware. Columbia Ace Hardware now carries Magnolia Home by Joanna Gaines Paint. Now their premium quality and huge selection of colors will be right in your neighborhood. Along with the award-winning service and advice, Columbia Ace has always provided for your paint projects. Around the block, 
what you need in stock with people who know their paint. Columbia Ace, the helpful place. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. This is Mark Curry at the Trailer Store. We are a local, family-owned business. Every day, I work with my wife, Susie, my mother, Becky, and my son, Justin. We offer a full line of lawnmower trailers, utility trailers, stock trailers, and a full line of trailer parts. We also offer service. Come see us at 1021 New Lewisburg Highway. Call us at 931-381-2795. That's 931-381-2795. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about Murray County's hidden figures. We're in the middle of a story about Edmund Kelly, who we talked about uh, finding the ability uh, uh, by teaching himself to read and write to become a preacher and manage to get away from the South, manage to purchase the freedom of his wife and his children, and they join him in the Northeast. What happens then, Joanne? Does the family thrive in the Northeast? Yes, his one son um, becomes a member of the 54th Massachusetts United States Color Tribune unit. Which is the regiment that's highlighted in the, Glory. In the movie Glory, right? Exactly. Uh, Edmund Kelly believed that African Americans should fight for their freedom. So he worked, he wrote position papers that talked about how African-Americans should join Lincoln's call to arms because um, this is the only way that you could ever hope to have freedom was to fight for your freedom. In fact, um, he wrote um, several papers that appealed to the former slaves to come to to join the United States colored troops and his and, and his son did. Also, he uh, was hired by Abraham Lincoln to minister to some of the uh, people who were behind the Union lines. And there's a letter that's included in one of these writings that talked about um, him giving these sermons. He called them exercises. And he also presented Lincoln with a bill for those exercises and and said that he would have time to do another couple of speeches in Washington, D.C. when he came there. But many historians believe that Edmund Kelly was one of those hidden figures that really did not get recognized. He was in uh, Massachusetts with the other abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, and they just sort of overshadowed him. You know, Frederick Douglass waged a wars in the newspaper against Lincoln and some of the other politicians, Edmund Kelly was more quiet, more subtle with his fight for the freedom of the African-Americans. Doing his work behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. But what a legacy he's left behind. The next part of that story is that his children returned to Columbia, Tennessee. Exactly. his his children become educators also. Uh, the one a son, uh, J.H. Kelly, came down here to visit his cousins, the Johnsons, 
And he saw that educators were needed and he decided to give up his desire to become a lawyer and decide to start the first public school for African-American students in Murray County. And he has a legacy all on his his own. His one uh, son becomes a teacher. And I think um, he taught uh, at... uh, at Tuskegee or at at Morehouse University. I mean, the family were significant contributors to Murray County, and I think to the nation. To the nation. How many, many churches that some of which still stand today. Right. Mount Lebanon uh, is certainly connected to him here in in Murray County as well. Yeah, there, there was a book that was written, I think, in 1927, and it was called The Men of Mark. And Edmund Kelly was included in that book, along with Richard Allen, who started the AME Church, and some of the other well-known African-American hidden figures, if you will. Sure. Let's shift a bit and talk about medicine in the 19th century South. Doctors doctors were scarce on the frontier, medical schools even more scarce nationally, yet some African-Americans managed to become skilled healers. One such physician was Dr. Jack Macon. What do we know about him? This was an interesting story, and I I heard about him a few years ago, but then I started to research him maybe last year. Dr. Macon was owned by uh, a guy named William Macon, and he was called a root worker, a root doctor. So he was able to heal people with the use of roots, herbs that no other doctors could. And I was so curious, I decided to call the Tennessee State Library and Archives and ask them for information on Dr. Jack Macon. And they sent me several petitions where people had petitioned to allow this man, because it was illegal for slaves, uh, former slaves, to... um travel freely through the through Tennessee and to perform this type of service. So there was a petition to, uh, I guess it was called the uh, Act of 1831 that would not allow um, slaves or African-Americans to do this. So there was a petition that was signed by 61 white women that says, please, change this law. They went to the Tennessee General Assembly that says, please change this law so Jack Macon could freely travel through Tennessee to perform this service. And there was one guy that there was one guy that wrote this petition and said that my wife was ill. I got the best doctors that I knew to help her, but she was continuing to go down until I got Jack Mason to come in to help her. It's an incredible story. Yes. It's an incredible story. We're running out of time, and we have still a long list of of people to cover. So we're going to have to do a part two of this, Joanne, at at some point in time. Uh, One last person I want to talk, because nobody knows this story. Murray County has a Tony Award nominee, and his name uh, uh, his, his name is Flournoy Miller. And uh, an amazing story. He's born here in Murray County, if I remember, uh, and goes into entertainment. He's a vaudevillian, uh, a vaudeville actor. Yes, and his 
He came from a long list of people in the arts. Uh, his grandmother, uh, he would develop plays with his grandmother. And I discovered this by looking at something that his cousin, who is a playwright, uh, wrote a few years ago. But he uh, is the son of uh, a man who was the editor of the Nashville Globe. And he was he was uh, very, very, uh, very, very talented. And he significantly influenced the Broadway, the African-American influence in the Broadway musicals early, early on. Um, he was he was born in Columbia and uh, he wrote. Uh, uh, many people may remember the Amos and Andy show. He was uh, cast. Uh, he was a scriptwriter for the Andy, Amos and Andy show on radio and then on television. So. Right. And he was working alongside people like U.B. Blake, who would go on to be a presidential freedom winner as well. I think his biggest legacy, he, he's breaking into Broadway. When African-Americans didn't have a place there, he's writing these shows that really open the doors to African-Americans on Broadway. His his most famous one, called Shuffle Along in 1921, had a huge run uh, on Broadway and elsewhere. And U.B. Uh, Blake wrote some of the music for it, including a song I grew up hearing with my parents. Parents uh, used to sing, I'm Just Wild About Harry. And uh, that was part of Shuffle Along, which was a, a show that was uh, written by Flournoy Miller. Unfortunately, we're out of time uh, today. Uh, I want to thank my co-hosts, Joanne McClellan and Dr. Barry Gidcombe, for sharing their expertise and passion with us uh, today. We will be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MemsModernLandscape.com. That's MemsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard, or online at paintcolumbia.com. 
This is Trey Adcock with Dixie Equipment Sales and Rental. We sell ASV and Wacker Noisen equipment. We also rent a wide variety of compact equipment in the Middle Tennessee area. Come see us. We are located in Columbia, Tennessee at 200 East 16th Street. You can call us at 615-969-0118 or visit our website at www.dixiediesel.com. We have been in business for over 42 years and we would love to help you turn your project into reality. This is Delk Kennedy, owner of Kennedy Broadcasting Company, operator of WKRM, historically 1340 AM, now 103.7 FM, and WKOM, 101.7 FM. We call ourselves Front Porch Radio, and I've said many times what that means. It means that we are working to connect this southern Middle Tennessee community, one listener, one relationship at a time. And let me elaborate on what that means. In this community, we will relentlessly promote jobs, commerce, business, industry, education, arts, green space, music, rivers, the great outdoors, healthcare, churches, charity, sports, and all the great people of Southern Middle Tennessee. Join us, help us, call us. Front Porch Radio, Delk Kennedy, thank you for listening.